Hello, I'm Bear Paulson, General Manager at North Star Canoes. This is titled, Minnesota is Unique. Sven and Ole got stuck here and never left. We have more Scandinavians per capita than the countries clustered around the Baltic Sea. We are the land of Ludafisk and Lefse. Rocky and Bullwinkle added to our uncommon fame. Frostbite Falls is known as the icebox of the nation. I, for one, cheered when it was below zero for the Super Bowl in Minneapolis a few years back. We needed that to submit our frigid reputation. Minnesota is also unique in allowing paddlers easy access to three major watersheds. The height of land lies near Hibbing, Minnesota. From the BWCA, paddlers can follow the waterways north to Hudson Bay and east of the Atlantic. And with a bit more portaging, the tributaries of the Mississippi lead south to the Gulf of Mexico. Grand Portage, at the tip of the Arrowhead, was the inland headquarters of the fur trade. It is located there because Minnesota is at the paddler's crossroads of North America. North Star is unique too. We build canoes with an incredible blend of seaworthiness and efficiency. Seaworthiness means you'll be safe when the wind kicks up. Efficiency means you'll easily be able to get where you want to go. North Stars are easy to paddle on the glassy days and safe to paddle on the rough ones. Rent a North Star at nearly all the BWCA outfitters or purchase one from one of our 15 retailers throughout the Midwest. North Star Canoes, inspired by the BWCA and helping you share wonder with those you love. We're proud to support the BWCA and this Boundary Waters podcast on WTIP. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experience were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star, and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Oh, and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Welcome to episode 76 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm Matthew Baxley. You are Matthew Baxley. <laughs> and I'm Joe Fredericks. Yes, you are. Joe, we got a new a new concept we're introducing to our audience today, all you listeners out there. It's the paddler profile. You've been talking about this for a while. I'm gonna totally give the credit to you because it's your kind of your thing going on, but I completely am on board and excited about it. But in a nutshell, what what's going on here? There are all sorts of folks that make up our paddling community that are doing really cool things, things that ins- inspire. And our stories, of course, are what inspire us. That's why we do the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are this particular story, like like future paddler profiles, is one that I thought was particularly unique and worth sharing. And we're going to hear about this person and about a specific trip that was really cool and out of the ordinary in today's episode. Mm. All right, well, let's just jump right in. 
My name is Brian Hansel. I'm an outdoor photographer and outdoor photography educator. I live in Grand Marais, Minnesota. Uh, much of my time these days is spent teaching photography all over the country. So typically I teach everywhere from Death Valley all the way to Smoky Mountains and a lot of national parks and, and uh, forest service land in between. You're accustomed to working and traveling in a lot of beautiful places, but you've chosen to live here. And I can't help but wonder if that has something to do with our proximity to wilderness. It does. Before we moved up here, my wife was uh, finishing up a second degree in Iowa. And um, not that there's anything wrong with Iowa. There's just not a lot of outdoor space. And we knew we wanted to be near somewhere that had more outdoor space. Uh, and I'd fallen in love with the Boundary Waters area. So that was kind of a priority for me to move up here. Um, it wasn't guaranteed because it all depended on her getting a job and where she got offers. And she happened to get a job offer up here. So we came. You mentioned that you already had this love for the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Where did that start for you, Brian, in your life story? You know, I can tell you exactly my first trip to the Boundary Waters. Because it took me a long time. So I was an adult when I first came. I'd heard about it when I was a kid. I had friends that come up here. But we just didn't have the means as a family to take a family vacation to the Boundary Waters. And they didn't have means to send me to camp or anything. So my first trip was actually right after 9-11. It was the weekend after 9-11. We came up to Grand Marais, a buddy and I. We both had solo canoes. And I remember sitting downtown Grand Marais in Blue Water Cafe, and there was nobody around. And then we immediately went into the Boundary Waters. We put in up on McFarland and uh, did the big loop out to Mountain and Moose and then back down through the Pikes and um, Pine, I think. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but we only ran into one group out there, and it was it was pretty interesting. They, they didn't have a radio. They didn't have anything. They just spent a week in the Boundary Waters, and they had no idea what world they were going to emerge into. And we met them on a portage and we were discussing, my buddy and I, like, do we tell them what had just happened? Uh, we just chose not to because they only had one more night in the Boundary Waters and we didn't want to freak them out. So. But uh, I, I got hooked. So it was nice. You know, it was like a weird time to be in the Boundary Waters. There were fighter jets flying down the border. Um, but it was also really, really nice to be away from everything that had just happened and to you know, have a, a another week of normal life before we would have to face what um, happened after that. I love that story because it really articulates the experience of complete and total separation that the wilderness gives us if we if we you know don't take the radio and if we can disconnect, which is harder and harder these days uh, to do. It sounds like that really def defines some of your appeal to getting into those spaces. How did it progress for you from there? Because now you, I mean, it's not just personal, it's professional for you. And, you know, take us a little bit on that journey. At the time, you know, when I came up to that trip, I was working in outdoor retail and I had spent a lot of times in, in the parks and recs and outdoor retail and the whole outdoor industry. I was working in retail in Iowa at the time and selling it. I was at a place that sold um, canoes and kayaks, you know, that kind of, um, and then we also did guns and, and, you know, the hooks and the bullets and the, all the outdoor gear stuff. So it was a big, big chain of stores. 
We just opened a big store down in Iowa. A lot of the employees had got into canoeing and I had grown up canoeing um, on the Mississippi rivers. When the canoe I wanted became available, I bought one. So it was, um, it was a Bell Wildfire. Um, so we started, we just started carrying Bell and I got a Bell Wildfire and then I was paddling the solo canoe and then another buddy of mine tried it. He fell in love with solo canoeing. And then a lot of our friends were coming up to the boundary waters, you know, and saying how great it was to go there. And it's been a, you know, up to that point, it was a lifelong dream of mine to come up to the boundary waters and check it out. You know, I managed to, to do that. For me, I go, it goes even further back than that. I grew up in Iowa hunting and fishing, um, hiking. I worked for the Iowa DNR for a while, uh, worked parks and recs for Iowa City for a while. And all of that outdoor stuff was kind of spurred from, from childhood, spending time in the outdoors. We lived in a, my dad was a contractor and they built this subdivision on the outskirts of the town that we lived in. And it was right up against the woods. So as a kid, we were always back in the woods playing. And I, you know, I, I think about my age then, you know, I was in like first, second and third grade when we lived up against the woods and, and our parents would just let us go in the woods and disappear for a full day. I don't know that, that that would be acceptable anymore, but that's how it was. All of our friends would just disappear into the woods for a day, go play down in the creek, throw stones, get into general good outdoor trouble. Uh, so my love just developed from being able to be in the woods. To me, you know, it always feels more like home when I'm in the woods. And I think probably part of that is because of childhood. Yeah, that's a really common story, Brian, this correlation between developing that comfort as a child that really seems to translate to this experience of comfort and ease in wild places and as an adult. You know, for so many folks that maybe isn't at the level of multi-day, multi-week wilderness experiences, but for you, it became that, and it became that in a pretty powerful way. And that brings us to this, this trip that we're going to talk about today. Tell us the inception of this trip and the concept behind it. You know, the trip sprung directly out of the pandemic. So pandemic starts in 2020. My original plan was make a lot of money into 2020, take a lot of time off in 2021 to ride my bike across the country. Well, income didn't happen in 2020 because uh, all the a lot of the instruction that I do as a photo workshop instructor just wasn't possible to do. You know, you, it worked out. It's fine. I got, was able to do classes eventually, but because of that, I knew I was going to have to work harder in 2021, but I also wanted to do a very challenging trip. So I was looking around for like local options and a map uh, landed right in front of me on the internet of this trip that um, state geologist Winchell had done in the late 1800s. So I was looking at that map and I was considering doing part of it, but then the more I read his journals and the more I dove into him as a person, the more interesting it got to me to attempt to do the entire trip that he had done. And this was one of two trips that he had he had done up here. That was kind of the inception of the ideas. And at that point, it was just figuring out how long it was going to take and seeing if I had that block of time between workshops that I could pull it off. And I was able to get that in the spring. Tell us a little bit about Winchell and what inspired you about his trip. So Winchell's this interesting character. He's a state geologist. 
And he's charged by Minnesota to go out and explore every corner of Minnesota for potential wealth, like mineral wealth, um, or just the, ge the general geology. And just a brilliant guy. He not only collected information about the rocks and the minerals, but he did natural history. Um, he wrote a book about uh, Native American language as well, if I'm remembering that correctly. He's kind of a, you know, you, you see pictures of him. He has a giant beard that hangs down to his belly. And he just looks like this, uh, you know, Indiana Jones kind of character, you know, the professor type. He's working for the, the University of Minnesota. And you're like, oh, this is like Indiana Jones guy, except he's uh, exploring Minnesota instead of far-fletched places. So that's the character. Um, very motivated guy. When when you look, I read his his biography and it's just... He accomplished so much from not only writing a, a ton of volumes about Minnesota, but he founded like a geological society, was president for that, worked at the university. I mean, he was just this overachiever uh, in the late 1800s. And uh, you know, sort of, if you look at his life, it's just, it's just very inspirational. On top of that, going into parts of Minnesota that just haven't been explored very much by the the white European settlers in the area. So he's, he's experiencing new things um, as far as from that perspective, especially coming up on the North Shore. There just wasn't much of a European settlement up here at that time. And no Highway 61. <laughs> you know, people were yeah. getting to the, to the region, I, I imagine, primarily through Lake Superior, which means that his trip started at the shore. Yep. So he so, would. So he, your trip also started at the shore. <laughs> yeah. So for him, he, you know, he leaves uh, the Twin Cities and takes a train to Duluth and then they paddle up the shoreline and he gets to Grand Marais on this trip and then goes inland from Grand Marais through the, what is now the Boundary Waters and exits uh, the inland back to Lake Superior at Lutzen. So, you know, you could paddle to Lutzen from Grand Marais and I've done this. You, it, it takes a day, <laughs> like by sea kayak, it takes like a day, not, not even a full day, but his route was a, a, the way that I recreated it approximately 160 miles. And it took him all summer. So. And was he solo on that trip? The information I have in his journals doesn't tell exactly how many people are with him, but he's with this guy, this character named Mallman, you know, that's his primary travel companion, but I, I would assume that he had native guides as well, but at least in the journals that I had access to, he doesn't really talk about that very much. Take us through your trip, Brian. Yep. So the, the route itself starts right in the harbor in Grand Marais. And then I attempted to follow what was originally called the Iron Trail, which was a prospector trail that ended up in Iron Lake. Um, eventually that was displaced by a railroad that went up Lima grade. So, um, and on Winchell's map, there's actually, they document that, that they're exploring that railroad at that time when he was here. For me, what I decided to do instead of trying to trace the exact location of that original iron trail, which I did before the trip, I bushwhacked into places and there's just no sign of it anymore. So I decided that I was going to use existing infrastructure. And this is a kind of a good example of what it was. So I, I hiked up the road in Grand Marais and, uh, through the hospital parking lot with a canoe and a backpack on my head. And then uh, if you're going, if you're driving up the Gunflint Trail, you know that there's the water tower as you come out of town. Well, right behind the water tower, there's a power line that goes straight up the hill. So I took that power line and that power line 
um, eventually put you on old ski hole road, superior hiking trail. So I jump on the superior hiking trail and that, uh, eventually following superior hiking trail, another road, I get to devil track Lake. So that's the first Lake that, that I hit, I paddle across that. And the interesting point now is it's all private property. So you have to get permission in order to come off the lake where you need to come off the lake. So I knew somebody that lived there, luckily. And then up to the Junko River, which is uh, leads you up to um, an area that's east and west twin lakes. There was a bit of bushwhacking involved uh, after the Junko River. Uh, brutal, brutal bushwhacking. So this is where uh, his route would have went west of there through Chemo Lake. And then uh, it was going to be a mile and a half of bushwhacking. And then there was no way that I was going to do that after I bushwhacked for um, about a quarter of a mile. And it took me hours. Eventually, I ended up entering the, the boundary waters at uh, Bauer Trout Lake. And this was a mistake on my part, actually, because I would have had assumed that I would be able to bushwhack from Marshall Lake on up to Little Trout Lake or Ram Lake, I forget which one, but that chain of lakes that's north of Bauer Trout. And I found the original portage and you can see that it was a portage. You look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, I found the original portage. So I start portaging this thing after about 200 yards, it just peters out into nothing. And uh, so the, the way I should have done that is just entered at Ram Lake. So this is where I went off of my original route a little bit because that portage wasn't possible. And because of the way that the boundary water is designed with permitting, I can't leave at Bauer Trout Lake and hike up to Ram Lake and re-enter because that would be against my permit. So I actually paddled all the way over to Brule. And then this was actually kind of part, kind of a cool part of the trip because you head north onto Winchell. So I'm actually on Winchell Lake and there's no evidence that he was ever there. Oh, wow. in his journal, in his journal, as he's passing it in the journal, he says, if we were to go west, this takes us on the Native American canoe route uh, that direction. So he acknowledges that there's a route that way. Um, so there was a pre-existing route in 1879 when he did this, but there's no evidence that he was ever on on Winchell, according to his journals. But now that lake is named after him. And then that back through Gaskin and then um, Trail Center, right past the restaurant there at Trail Center. So road walk, Hungry Jack Road, on to Hungry Jack, and then into the wilderness again. And on this part of the trip's an interesting one, because I was originally thought that this was going to be, when I was talking to the Forest Service, they originally thought that this was going to be a commercial trip because I was going to film it. Hmm. Um, but then we determined that because I wasn't going to make money on the trip, I was just filming it for my own personal documentary reasons that it wasn't a commercial trip. So now I had to have normal permits. Um, and by the time I found that out, there were no more permits available for uh, that area, right? So um, I couldn't, couldn't get a permit for Duncan, which I really needed. But luckily, because the way that the Boundary Waters is arranged is the Gunflint Lake is not actually in the Boundary Waters. So I just pulled a day permit there and then I paddled all the way to the Gunflint Lake that day. So it was, I don't know, 22 miles, something like that. Well, yeah, it was right. A that's a haul. So you went up through Rose, uh, Rat, South, North, all the way over in one big push. Camped on the um, furthest east side of the Gunflint. There's a couple campsites there. Some are on islands and one is on um, the shore there. So I 
camp close to the shore because I wanted to go see Bridalville Falls, which I'd never, never I've paddled past it numerous times. I've never gone. So I decided it was about time to do that. And super cool falls for anybody who hasn't seen it. Yeah. And that, that day was actually kind of interesting The doing the 22 miles because I had a headwind and the head, the wind was blowing sustained at 10 to 15, uh, gusting to 30 to 40 mile per hour winds. I mean, you just see these gusts come across the water. It was brutal. Like I, the wind the gusts would hit me and I, my canoe would just stop. Right. <laughs> and it's the longest day of the trip. And then it's also like a crazy early season, 90 degrees. <laughs> like it was unreal hot. Luckily the magic is a fast canoe because I think if I was in the wildfire, I wouldn't have been able to do that, that amount that day. It would have been, it would have been bad. And the, the heat, I don't do very well in heat. So I living, you know, if you live up here, right. If we, if it gets above 80, we think it's too hot. <laughs> People call in sick to work. If it gets above 80, it's just, it's just brutally hot. <laughs> um, so 90 degrees in the begin end at the end of May, I mean, it had been a cold May. So I think, you know, normally it was like 50 of highs all May. And then all of a sudden we had that 90 degree day. Mm-hmm. So I'm camping and the, the bugs, I was hoping to avoid the bugs, but the bugs were out with that 90 degree. And it was so brutal that landing on the shore, I, I almost went like literally, I think insane <laughs> going from trying to get in my tent out of the bugs. And I had a full bug shirt on and everything. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of mosquitoes. I didn't even know how I was going to eat. And you don't want to eat in the tent because that's bad practice. So I, I figured if I was going to eat dinner, I was going to paddle my canoe out, eat dinner and then come back. But as I'm get the tent set up and everything. I'm ready to go eat dinner in the canoe. And I noticed this thunderstorm coming at me in the distance. It's coming slowly at me. And then it, uh, I, I figured I'll get in, I'll eat after the thunderstorm. And the temperature dropped from 90 degrees down to 40 degrees. And the next morning it was below freezing. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, was, what, that's what we get up here in May. Yeah, it was crazy. It was like a typical strong May storm. Um, that you expect lightning everywhere. You know, I'm on my, on my feet in my tent, crouching down, hopefully not getting struck by lightning, (laughs) uh, you know, kind of the, you know, fun May trip type of a thing. One of those thunderstorms where you can kind of feel the electricity kind of vibrating in the, in the air. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that my hair stood up on end, but it was certainly striking everywhere around me. It was, Mm -hmm. um, it was crazy. This is all on Winchell's route. Yep. This is all on Winchell's route at this point. Yep. Yeah. So, he went down the gun flint, the middle of the trailer. Uh, he, he did a couple side tracks. So originally he had gone over to Loon Lake and Iron Lake and explored that stuff. So he's explored a lot of lakes up in that area looking for iron because that's where iron was reported to be. So he was there to look for that stuff. He paddled every direction that I paddled at this point but he did it in a slightly different order. So he came up to Gunflint and then went back and then went up to Loon Lake. And there used to be a portage from Loon Lake into the Gunflint. It, it went from the Eastern side of Loon to the Eastern side of Gunflint Lake. Uh, and he took that portage. So I was a little bit, you know, I didn't follow his exact path, but I was on all of the lakes that he took in the direction that he took them. Um, uh, he just backtracked and then paddled another section. He was wandering. Yeah, he was wandering because they were exploring for minerals and, and um, you know, it had been reported to be up there. So they were out there chiseling away at the rock so they could bring samples back with them. Yeah, Gunflint paddled up the granite to, or to Sag and then down to Seagull. 
And then from there, I went over to Keck. And at Keck, there's a peak that they named after the guy on the trip. So his name's Mallman, and they name it Mallman Peak. So one of the goals of the trip is I wanted to bushwhack to the top of that mountain. It was a brutal bushwhack. I had to turn back multiple times, but I eventually got to where they were at. Um, and I found a, a survey pin from the early 1900s when they were trying to establish the border. A Canadian survey crew had come over to the U.S. side, put a pin there to try to um, establish the border. And from there, I hooked up with the old Ojibwe canoe route down to the Poplar River and eventually the mouth uh, of the Poplar River at Luton Resort. I can't remember the exact route because it was kind of weaving in and out, but eventually you get down to um, outside the boundary waters. So I left, go down to um, Sawbill, and then from Sawbill, I went through smoke and that chain to the east and eventually ended up on the road called the grade, which is the old railroad grade and one of the primary roads in Cook County. Followed that towards the east to Crescent Lake, which is outside the boundary waters now. And from Crescent Lake, there's an old canoe route that's um, starting to grow in, uh, unfortunately, because it's a beautiful canoe route. From Crescent Lake, went down to Rice Lake. And from Rice Lake, there used to be a portage into this lake called White Pine Lake. But that portage doesn't exist anymore, and it's been logged in there. From the air, I actually flew a drone over that area pre-trip, and I thought that I could take a logging road because it looked like from the drone it would be possible. Uh, but it just wasn't possible. It was all grown in. Eventually get through White Pine, and then I'm on, what's the road south of White Pine? Honeymoon Trail? And take Honeymoon Trail uh, and eventually end up on the, the road with the maple syrup. Uh, yep. Uh, wild Country Maple Syrup. So I, I can picture I, it, but I don't know either. I don't. <laughs> so that crosses the Poplar River, the Upper Poplar River, and then I'm on the Poplar. And that's super narrow up there. Yeah, and it was rapidy, so, and it was cold. So I'm paddling down the poplar and I get, I, I had hoped to do that in one day, except there was a lot of rapids on it that I wasn't expecting. And I was late um, to the day. So I ended up getting to the camping site on the poplar river on the superior hiking trail. So I actually stayed on the superior hiking trail again. Um, in the morning I hiked down, I actually portaged around some rapids using the superior hiking trail. So it's the second time I was on the superior hiking trail put back in, waited about a, a mile, waited in line and paddled about a mile of, of rapids. Um, and then got to the ski hill and portaged right down the ski hill, right down the golf course uh, to Luton Resort. So yeah, that's the, it, it seems like a long complicated route and it was, um, it was, you know, putting it, having those missing portages really forced me to rely more on um, some of that in, existing infrastructure. So it wasn't completely on his route, but it was as close to Winchell's route as I could potentially do. Brian, how many days did that? So you said it took Winchell a, about a month? Yeah, uh, well, the whole summer, I think he was up here. Like his whole trip was for the summer and probably the, that period um, was about a month of time um, total in the Gramary area. And how about for you? Uh, so, uh, right around two weeks is what it took. So you're cruising. Yeah. 160 miles. I figure approximately 30 miles of portages out of that. You know, I had like 17 or 18 days to get it done in. So that was the maximum amount of time. And if I 
wasn't able to get it done, I was just going to call for a ride from wherever I was at. So I had a, I had a kind of book. Yeah. And you did it with, with some room to spare. Brian, you know, I know it's impossible to recount all like how this trip really felt for you, but what, I think, what are some of the specific highlights and overall, what was the, so the, your, your tenor of your experience. So I just like to hear about those things. So the overall kind of experience was exactly what I was looking for. I wanted to be extremely challenged (laughs) and it turned out to be challenging just from the sheer speed of the trip, but also some of the bushwhacks and road carries and stuff like that made it very challenging. So, you know, that in itself was, was a reward for me. It's exactly what I wanted to do. One of the unexpected highlights for me on the trip was uh, I brought along Winchell's journal. So I'd photocopied it and I brought it along. And as every day that I'm traveling, I'm reading his entries, what he did on each lake, what they found, where they prospected at, um, how many rocks that they took back. They must've had like a canoe load of rocks because it was, they're taking rocks from everywhere. But reading what he's experiencing at the same time as I was going through it really connected me uh, to the wilderness even deeper. So I don't know if you are a fan of Leopold, but Leopold talked about these split rail values, which is the ability of a modern day, um, you know, outdoor recreationalist to connect back through history to our people that had previously gone into these areas. And by doing so, he said, you could make your trip a lot more, uh, a lot deeper and a better experience, a more, a, a better wilderness experience. That was one of the first times that his philosophy impacted me in the point where like, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense. My trip is significantly deeper now that I'm relating it to this historic trip. You went into that with the intention of reliving some of that. I went into the trip with the intention of doing the trip because it was sort of a contrived trip, you know, like I wanted the challenge, but having his journals along, I wanted to just to be able to double check and then potentially find any of the sites that, that they had taken samples from, which was, I found impossible. I couldn't find any sample sites, but having that journal there enhanced the trip. Like it, it just connected me, made a lot deeper trip for me, a lot more connection to the boundary waters. Unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. Yeah. I hadn't had any expectations of that happening. Wow. That's really cool. I mean, I imagine it's in a similar way that, you know, a lot of us will maybe read Sigurd Olson while we're out there or something akin to that. It's like having a friend along, but a friend with different eyes in a different time. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I also found like, I, I, I'll have to say that in the past, I didn't pay that much attention to the rocks. You know, if there's a big cliff face, you're like, oh, cool. But he's writing about what this rock is, what color it is. And um, and all of a sudden I found myself paying attention to the colors of the rocks. Uh, and that deepened the experience. Like on Jasper Lake, I camped on Jasper Lake and the rock around Jasper Lake, I, I've been on there multiple times. I've never noticed it before it's a deep green rock. I mean, you look at it and if I hadn't had Winchell's journal along, I would have never taken the time to notice the color of the rocks being green. And now that I know it, I'm just going to, every time I return to the boundary waters, it's going to be an additional experience that I have 
to be able to relate deeper to the wilderness and deeper to the land. That's beautiful. I love that. And I find that very inspiring. Brian, maybe in closing here, when you think back to that trip, what jumps out to you as sort of like, that was a good moment? There's so many. (laughs) Um, So, you know, if I were to kind of categorize it into, if it's hard to pick one for me, so can I do three? (laughs) Yes. Let, Let me do three. Let me do one that was, so this is a, there's a chain of small lakes. It's one of those uh, situations, I forget all the names of the lakes, but it's when you're going to Keck. It's a series of short lake, short portage, short lake, short portage, short lake, short portage. And during that section, I had run into three or four other solo canoers out on big solo trips. You know, the goal for the day was to get through those portages really quickly and it took me like four times as long because I'm talking to all of the soloists and you're getting to know other canoeists out there and why they're out there and what they're doing. And, and one of the guys, he has a bell canoe, like original bell canoe from back in the day, and it doesn't have a single scratch on it. He has waders on. And what he does is he would, um, he would take like a flotation device, get out of the canoe wade to the shore, put a flotation device on shore, bring his canoe over and set it on. And he told me in all of the years of his ownership, which was something like, I don't know, 20 years he'd owned the boat, he put two scratches on it. I was like, that is a love of canoeing right there. It was just unbelievable. So that was kind of a highlight. I'll, I'll never forget, forget talking to him on that, um, to have somebody love their canoe so much to take care of that. And that's in direct contrast to me, because I think canoes should be beat up. If I, if I run rapids in in a Kevlar canoe and it gets smashed up, you know, that's what, that's, that's how it is. (laughs) So that was, that was a fun experience. Um, Probably one of the, the more fun outdoor experiences I had was on the Poplar river. Cause I hadn't paddled that section before, but you get some nice rapids in there. And I'd like to go in with a little bit of a higher water level um, with a canoe that I feel more comfortable beating up and put in uh, kind of on that uh, Baker Lake road uh, and then paddle down to the top of the top of the ski hill section. There's a, a good chunk of class two, class one, class two rapids in there. They're perfect for a canoe. I mean, absolutely perfect rapids for canoeing in. So I'd like to get a, a canoe that I could beat in there. And then, you know, I, this is, may sound crazy to some people, but I really like lining a canoe through rapids. <laughs> it's just, it's fun. There's something about wading in knee deep to waist deep water while you're pushing your canoe, dodging rocks, um, having it on a line in front of you. And, and, and that day was fun because it was blue sky. Um, although it was brutally cold that morning, I woke up and my boots were completely frozen and I had to stick them in the water to thaw them out. So I'm standing in the water, falling out the boots in the water. It was freezing. And then I had to wade up to knee deep water. And that day that was, that was brutal. And made that all the more memorable, right, Brian? Yep. I think like the, the hardest day or the hardest experience on it was early in the trip. Well, there's two hardest experiences, but the, the physical one was early in the trip. So I'd paddled up the Junco. You get to eventually get to this lake called Track Lake and you have to portage up over to Pine Lake. There used to be a a straight portage there and it doesn't exist anymore and it's been logged. Um, It's not very far, quarter mile, half mile distance. And it took me like forever, like a half of a day to do it. 
And I'm essentially just pushing the canoe in front of me through dense new growth pines and spruce and fir that are maybe, you know, two to three inches. And there's one to two feet between each trunk. And there's no way to portage through there. So you just push the canoe, get in front of it, pull it, carry your pack 50 feet, drop it on the ground, come back for the canoe, drag it through. Um, that was probably the physically hardest part of the trip. And it was, it's not an experience that I would like to repeat again. And then, um, you know, the forest service, of course, one of the stipulations of being able to, to do this was, yeah, don't break any trees and on purpose. So I couldn't go in there with like a machete or something to cut them all down and brush a new, um, rebrush a portage trail that used to be there, you know, so it had to be done this way. There was no way to, to, to do it. You had to just muscle your way through. Yeah. And, and then the, one of the challenging things I think, um, so if anybody wants to repeat this trip, one of the challenging things is that you really need to be on top of the permitting for this because the trip requires three different permits. So you need a permit to either go in on Bower Trout or Ram, then you need that permit to go in up by Rose, and then you need the additional permit to go in on the Granite River. So you have to have the three different permits and figure out how you're gonna do it. And the problem with that kind of permitting and, um, is there's no flexibility in days on the beginning of the trip. So if you have a weather day, you gotta make it up the next day, or if you're ahead, you gotta slow down. It's, it wasn't a challenge of the trip specifically other than this kind of permitting system that we have because the wilderness is so loved. And if we didn't have this sort of permitting, it, it would just get loved to death. So it's, it's something that just to keep in mind, and it was, it was challenging. I find this to be very inspiring. Not just the specific trip itself, Brian, but this idea of following another person's footsteps, paddle strokes through the wilderness uh, and connecting with a different time in the same place. And that's really a cool way to intentionally have a, a new experience in a place that you know sometimes with those of us who have, we go to the boundary waters so much it's like how do we you know how do we make it interesting and this way that you did it is very captivating folks have questions about your trip can they get a hold of you yeah so the easiest way um would just be to you can there's a contact form on my website which is brianhansel.com they could email that you know i got a lot of social media accounts so if they just go to social media wherever and put brian hansel and they can certainly you know drop me a line that way i'm more than happy to to talk to anybody about the trip and there's still another winchell trip up here that somebody could potentially do so so if somebody's looking to do something similar they could start from grand portage end up over on the iron range and then end their trip down in minneapolis well maybe you and i could talk about that off the record uh yeah <laughs> it'd be fun <laughs> And uh, if you do want to go paddle that Upler Poplar section with somebody, keep me posted. Cause, uh, yeah, we'll do. I'd, I'd love to bounce around some class too. Brian, thank you for sharing your experience with us on the podcast today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Brian Hansel. If you recall, we 
heard from Brian on an episode right before the COVID pandemic. He came out with uh, his wife, young son, on to Duncan when we were fishing, and was like, what's this COVID thing? March, April, no, March probably. 2020 he was gonna go to canoe copia and we and instead we <laughs> yes, all went exactly. out there <laughs> yep he didn't go we didn't go, nobody went that's right uh which essentially was you know right before the right when it was right around when he was incepting the concept of this trip gosh it was when he was on the podcast chatting with us so great to hear about those journals and how he had them sort of as a tool basically they were going to be the the map that's why he was kind of ta- had this you know information with him and then that sort of tapping into seeing the wilderness and experiencing it in a sense like Winchell did that that's what stood out to me I mean the whole thing's great Matthew but uh that's that's something I'll take away with me yeah totally and and so often we when we hear about the history of this region we have the you know the French voyagers or the the fur trade the fur trade yeah and and obviously like we've said many times the indigenous people or the the original inhabitants here but there isn't usually much that connects the history from then to now and you know i I was surprised to learn that winchell was funded to come up here to look for minerals for extraction you know that that was what helped to start creating access to this region that we now benefit from for the better or the worse Mm -hmm. yeah i i think there's a there's a lot of layers to that that we could uh get into but uh, what First of all, too, should, I mean, let's uh, acknowledge just the the distance and the the journey. Like looking at the map, which I think you're going to drop on the Instagram page, Matthew. Yeah, it'll be on our Instagram and our Facebook page, so you can see both Winchell's original map and uh, Brian's GPS coordinates that he mapped along the way. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, great to have Brian back on. And the first of these paddler profiles, you, you got more people you're going to feature or that we're going to put on the podcast. Yeah, I don't want to spill the beans. Tip your hand. Well, you, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay. I mean, one would not have to look far to figure it out. I'll say that. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, uh, it's fall. It's a beautiful time in the Boundary Waters. I think the traffic has slowed down mightily. Uh, you know, no longer need an overnight permit that you have to get through uh, recreation.gov and so forth. But the, the leaves are past their peak and it's gotten cold. There's been some snow now. It was snowing this morning. In mid-October, right. So seasons have changed, you know. The next thing's going to be the ice up and that's probably weeks away at this point. You know, a month maybe. Well, you know, I just remember in our first trip of the season when we went out, I was wearing my dry suit. We're going out tomorrow, tonight. Uh-huh. Um, Pulling the dry suit back out because it's uh it's that time of year. We've come full circle. Mm-hmm. Well, you better go get that dry suit on. It's snowing out again. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I just sing when I paddle, feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Rule me, rock me in my dreams. You can roll me, rock me in my dreams. So I like to sing, I love to dance. I play the fool if I got the chance. All around the campfire light. All around. 
campfire light All round, all round, all round The campfire light Thank you.